data from up to 50 million users was taken for ad targeting efforts during the 2016 election. Today, Facebook is expected to hold... What is the new mission of Facebook? So our new mission is to bring the world closer together. A new economy is emerging, and this new economy is powered by a new type of fuel, data. Data is going to have more value in the future, and we're going to build economies on our data. Data will become a currency. Data is the new oil. But there are troubling signs that this new world is inheriting all the same problems as the old one. Power imbalances, monopolies, and a lack of accountability. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, no. I think that may be what this is all about. Your right to privacy, the limits of your right to privacy, and how much you give away in modern America in the name of, quote, connecting people around the world. But how gloomy should we be? Will technology inevitably lead us into a digital dystopia? Or could there be a whole range of potential futures, some of them shiny and welcoming, others dark and scary? Today on the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're talking about the rise of data oligarchs and how we can stop them. I'm Hannah Wheatley, filling in for Aisha, who's away this week. Stay with us. There are 10 kinds of people in the world, those who understand binary and those who don't. And I'm very pleased to be joined by 10 of our favourite experts today. Do you get it? <laughs> ho, 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 ho. <laughs> There's one for the developers. <laughs> it's data. Is that data? <laughs> Lovely binary. So here to talk about whether anyone can stop Mark Zuckerberg, I'm joined by Neff researcher Duncan McCann this week. Hello. Hi, Duncan. And also back on the pod is Carl Miller, the research director for the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos and author of a new book with a very dramatic title. Will you tell us what it's called? The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> so, Carl, you're obviously very interested in power and technology. What do you mean by the power grab and who's grabbing power? Power is obviously shifting in enormously important and terribly confusing ways across all of society. And um, I think what's happening right now is that kind of power is becoming kind of detethered. It's kind of leaking out of the kind of conventional places where we consider it to be. Um, and and finding all these new configurations. And sometimes they are radical dispersions of power. And I think that many people, whether they're citizen journalists or digital Democrats, are getting kind of access and finding routes to power which are, which are amazing and far different from before. But then also power is kind of collecting and coalescing, I think, into tremendous sparkling new concentrations. And as you've already said, the kind of data oligarchs, the, uh, the tech giants are probably the most obvious, most remarkable creation um, of, uh, of concentrations of uh, power and data and platforms um, um, of the digital age so far. So if technology was supposed to be democratic and disruptive, giving us the power to do creative things and communicate with each other, how did we end up recreating the old power structures? Well, I, I think, um, I'm not sure we are recreating the old power structures. In many ways, I think entirely new also unequal power structures are actually quite violently overturning um, the power structures that already existed. Um, but I don't think technology was ever supposed to be democratic. Um, I don't think it, it, it ever had an inherent kind of trend towards that at all. And, um, and, and it's not democratic in the way that it's built, and it's not democratic necessarily in the way that it works. Um, it's not democratic in the power that it gives people. And most of the technology, frankly, that we use on a daily basis um, is built in one valley in California. Um, and in that valley are 
developers and venture capitalists and uh, and uh, and visionaries um, who have uh, who have vastly unequal control, I think, over the tech that we use. Duncan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Carl's absolutely right. And I mean, the other thing to remember, uh, and, and it was a book that Carl and I were just talking about, there's this whole military history to the computer and the internet uh, that also uh, can't be ignored. And so even uh, the intentions, the early intentions of the way this technology was designed might have had some of the outcomes that we see today in terms of mass surveillance, um, in terms of being able to analyze huge amounts of data that might already uh, absolutely have been baked in there. Mm. Um, now, a lot of this power is based on the data that big tech companies have about us. So let's talk about surveillance. Um, Duncan, you've written that governments and corporations are building a surveillance architecture or data panopticon. What do you mean by that? Well, so the panopticon is, um, is, is a reference to a, a prison that um, was designed in the kind of Victorian age where one guard could kind of monitor all the so it's kind of a central uh, circle and then wings coming out of it and so one guard could monitor potentially monitor all prisoners at all times the idea being that if the prisoners felt they were being watched or that they could be being watched but that, but they could never know uh, that they would behave uh, properly and so this is somewhat what the internet is turning into now where you have government tools that really want to know what certain civilians are doing at all times and you also have a corporate architecture that is seeking to gather as much data about us as possible, mainly to provide us ads, uh, but also to kind of improve uh, their algorithms. And so some, what I think is that these two entities are kind of mutually reinforcing. Um, and some of the reasons why many governments have been slow to kind of clamp down on this huge rampant corporate uh, data gathering is because it's actually quite useful for them to be able to tap into uh, phone lines, uh, equipment. Um, I mean, prior to working at NEF, I used to work for Cisco Systems. It, I mean, one of the ironies is, is that at Cisco, when we were pitching to some companies, uh, we used to warn them away from companies like Huawei because the Chinese are going to be have put back doors in that equipment. And, you know, if you want safe equipment, come to Cisco. Uh, what in fact it now transpires is that Cisco equipment is being intercepted en route to customers with backdoors then being placed in them. And so because it basically suits both of their ultimate outcomes, the corporate outcome is to sell us more and to know more about us and to influence and to get us kind of addicted to this tech and the government it's so that they can create uh, a more compliant citizenry, uh, understand when we're kind of close to revolution and things like that. And, and, and that's what this, this kind of data panopticon has emerged. It's all very dystopian. Um, can you tell, like on that, can you tell us about this, the new system that China's developing for giving everyone a kind of trustworthiness score? It's very science fiction. Yeah, so China is, uh, is, is in the process of implementing what they're calling the social credit score. Um, and so what this is, is that every citizen in China by 2020 will have to sign up to this system and that will basically rate their trustworthiness. And this is beyond what we can imagine here. So, for instance, our credit rating, which basically looks at all of our financial data, that will certainly be a part of uh, the social credit score. But it will also look at your social networks, who you friend, uh, what kind of stuff you write. And all of this will be packaged into one uh, single score. This will have really serious implications on the people who get... So poor scores will mean no access to good jobs, uh, maybe travel restrictions, uh, not able to get loans. 
Whereas being at the top end of the um, of the credit score allows you to travel visa free, uh, get access to very low cost loans, uh, things like that. Um, even access to some dating services. There are now specific dating services purely for people with good credits, with good uh, social scores. Um, and now these aren't operational at the moment. At the moment, uh, they're basically being being piloted by private companies. And so you have competing huge digital companies basically creating their own social credit algorithms and scores, which the Chinese government will ultimately uh, analyze and um, and then implement their own. So we don't know exactly what the, 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 the official version will be, but we already have hundreds of millions of Chinese people voluntarily signing up uh, to these systems. Wow. that's I mean, that's quite scary, isn't it? But that's all the way in China, isn't it? So, I mean, what sort of influence are algorithms and automated decision-making things having on us already here? Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like this could this could never happen here. And China is, you know, is another place. It's another type of government. We're definitely not doing any of that. But algorithms and automated decision making are already permeating so many different uh, areas of our life. And in many ways, you know, we really do need these algorithms. The Internet would be absolutely useless were it not for algorithms that help us sort through the information, uh, decide what we can what we can view. Uh, really, they help us kind of navigate this digital uh, environment. The danger is when they start to become uh, gatekeepers of particular goods and services, or they start to be used to make decisions that basically humans don't want to make and they want to hide behind a kind of automated decision making. They also bring in lots of different issues when, uh, so algorithms are generally trained on historic data. And one of the, you know, one of the interesting trends at the moment is is kind of predictive policing algorithms, which help the police decide uh, where to focus their resources in a, in a kind of austerity constrained world where we can't be everywhere. Um, the idea is that police can use these algorithms to help them t predict where they should go so that they can uh, so they can um, um, intercept the crime. Now, if you look, obviously, crime is a is a is a really biased data set. And so if you were only to look at the historical incidents of arrest and uh, conviction, you wouldn't get the full picture of where crime is appearing, but only where crime has been recorded or where arrests have been made. And then you would send more police to this location, they would pick up more people, and you would get this self-reinforcing cycle that seemed to be that the algorithm is correct, but it probably wasn't giving you the full picture. So, so yeah, so although algorithms are really vital for us navigating this new world, we also need to be very careful about how they're built and how they're applied and, and what decisions exactly they're applied to. Okay, but what about, so GDPR, the new European rules about data. So we all got a thousand emails about new privacy policies a few months ago. Um, will that keep our data safe and, and put more power in the hands, hands of ordinary people? I mean, I think we have no idea yet what GDPR will actually do. I mean, the, the, there's there's plenty of reports saying that actually the the kinds of organisations that GDPR makes life more difficult for are actually charities, much smaller data processors, um, much uh, much poorer companies, and that really the the tech giants who have been seen to really be the targets of GDPR politically um, were actually the ones that uh, were uh, were best placed to navigate their way around it. And actually their kind of day-to-day uh, -day kind of um, business um, hasn't really changed at all. There's also another fear, which is that, and one of the things I think that's really important to talk about is, is where kind of competition and open markets kind of um, fits in the digital age, 
one of the one of the other things would would, would be around um, how we um, allow more and different kinds of competitors to the tech giants. And I think there's a fear that kind of GDPR actually now raises additional barriers to prevent the next Facebook or the next Google um, from coming along and actually collecting the kind of data that that Facebook and Google collected um, throughout their history up to this point. So it kind of reinforces the monopoly. The the, the fear is that is that this yes it does and this whole area. Um, to legislate in is an absolute minefield of unintended consequences. Um, and I've heard from lots of legislators that, that, that they just really consider this to be almost an impossible area to try and actually use the law to get effect in. Because time and time again, they see that a law that, mean, that tries to do X actually does Y. And then Z comes along anyway and disrupts the whole thing before, um, before it's even enacted and they have to start at zero again. So, um, you know, I, I kind of agree... I, you know, I, I do agree with Duncan. I think there, there obviously are fears that come al- along with lots of these technologies. But actually, probably where I, I differ from him is in thinking that the internet or technology, and sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth, maybe you don't think this, but but that they are, they're, they're kind of um, obviously kind of going to kind of extend and entrench the power of uh, the state. Uh, in many ways, I actually think the state is, um, is, is enfeebled um, by this, and that institutions like politics, like Parliament, um, are actually um, feeling like they're in a very, very weak position, not a very strong position, as a result of all the changes that we're currently seeing right now. Because it's a new power; it's not an old power. Um, it's it's a power which has kind of massively kind of disrupted all kinds of status quos, um, and I think probably the kind of cross-cutting issue um, is speed. So. Um, Lots of the things that conventionally used to make you powerful, like scale um, and size, uh, um, matter probably a lot less now than they did in the past. Um, and lots of the kind of actors that you see emerging that in one way or another are very powerful, are, are able to move very, very quickly. So if you actually go into the tech giants, if you go into the headquarters in Silicon Valley, um, they are terrified of being huge. They're terrified of being incumbents. Covered in all the walls are posters that say things like, hack, keep moving. Um, Amazon, um, famously, Jeff Bezos wrote a letter to Amazon warning against day two thinking. Every day, he said, we need to think like a day one startup. The day that we, uh, the day that we um, bec- um, uh, become the incumbent is a day that we will sink in the water. And even now, if um, a manager, if you imagine yourself as an Amazon engineer, if a manager says that an idea that you you have is a bit day two, well, that idea will never see day three. So, so they are they're they're they're, they're terrified of, of being huge, and, and and they still operate incredibly dynamically. The one thing that can't operate that quickly are states, um, and is and is legislation. Yeah, and I certainly you know something uh, there's there's definitely something about this this rulemaking that is is really really challenging. And you know, although the EU has made a valiant effort to put something in place, I think there's a wider concern about what this does for generally kind of Europe's place in this development around tech and, and AI by making it harder to gather lot the, all the data that's needed to build these powerful kind of tech and AI platforms. Um, and in fact, Europe is very, you know, we don't have our own search engines. We don't have our own, uh, a lot of these key platforms, you know, we don't have our own social media here. So go to the US, go to China, India, Russia, they're all kind of very actively fermenting local instances of these. And there's a big question about whether uh, the EU's attempt to build this kind of safer, more trustworthy data infrastructure will in fact 
mean that Europe isn't able to develop the new tech and the new platforms that we need to compete. So we've got to, we've got to kind of ask ourselves, really, whether these kind of concentrations of data and, and advanced computational prowess and capital are necessarily always a bad thing. I mean, one of the kind of most powerful economic logics that the kind of the digital technology has unleashed is the one where kind of data and platforms feed into each other. So um, you create a platform. Um, it begins to produce data, which improves the platform. The platform gets bigger. The platform begins to enjoy platform effects, meaning that really um, it, uh, it's, it's kind of increase in size um, gives it an exponential increase in value. So, the, you know, the, it's far more valuable to be on Facebook, to be on High Five, through the sheer reason that there are more people on Facebook. Mm -hmm. If you want to get your video seen, you put it on YouTube. If you want to sell something or buy something, you do it on Amazon. Um, and this kind of this is a kind of cycle of dominance, and it, it kind of means that 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 naturally we don't have markets emerging in each of these new areas of economic digital life. We have one or two players. We have a monopoly or a duopoly in almost all of them. As 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 we try and kind of politically challenge these concentrations of data, and and um, in a sense break them up because we're kind of instinctively nervous about these things becoming too big and too powerful. In other parts of the world, these concentrations are actually embraced. And that must be, I think, one of the reasons why like, Europe hasn't created our own kind of tech unicorn um, or, or, or decacorn uh, yet. <laughs> okay, so that all sounds really gloomy. Um, what, would a, what would a good version of the future look like? And, and what can we do to make sure that we get that one and not, and not the gloomy one? You know, I mean, I th there's this essay question which is often posed, which is kind of how, you know, is, is there going to be more liberation and, con uh, and, and empowerment or is there going to be more kind of control and, and, uh, and oppression than ever before? And to be honest with you, I think that we're probably going to have to just live in a world where there's more of both happening um, <laughs> more than there ever was before. Um, and, and kind of come, become more comfortable with, with there both being all these kind of astonishing opportunities for us all to do good to one another and there's going to be all these new potent forms of, of, of control and, and, and injury. Um, and, and they're going to be wrapped up all together in basically people finding, um, through technology, um, new ways of doing the things that they've always done. Uh, both be selfless and kind and cruel and, 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 uh, and evil all at once. Um, I think at the moment it very much feels like we are constantly groping back to the kind of toolkit that we had last time we need to do this. Oh, we need more regulation. Um, we need maybe to create a professional body of algorithm makers, um, you know, a Royal College of Algorithmists. So I think I might have even <laughs> recommended that on the last <laughs> podcast. Um, you, know, or, you know, and we need more primary legislation, um, you know, and we need to have greater public scrutiny. And, and my least favourite of all of them, we need to have a public debate <laughs> My God, I mean, like, the number of it's so easy to say. I mean, at a time when we need to move quicker than ever before, having a public debate on all these issues um, simply, can't, um, simply can't be the answer alone. Um, we need to find a new kind of toolkit. Um, I don't think we can simply grope back to those, to those kind of problem solvers of the past. Um, how do you make an algorithm a, a transparent is unclear to me. And, and whether a Royal College of Algorithmists will control a Silicon Valley tech giant, I think is also unclear to me. I think there needs to be a whole new series of ways in which we, we try and enforce the rules now. I don't know what that full toolkit looks like, but there are some things that emerge and they look like they have to be part of it. Kind of ethics by design as a principle, I think is going to be absolutely key. Um, also key will be, I think, 
kind of the the movement of a lot of how tech is built into public life. So I I cannot see in five years' time how um, tech developers will essentially be subject to their own private moral de- determinations around how a lot of tech is built and whether a lot of tech is good or bad. I mean, that's not how we build cars. That's not how we build planes. That's not how we build almost all the technology which is important to us. It's subject to a series of publicly understood and enforced rules which tries to make it safe and tries to make it pro-social. And there's, and there's a similar kind of story to the rise of the car. You know, when it first came, it was a death trap. People were really worried. And it took 70 years before we had seatbelts. And, you know, we really had some a piece of technology that, you know, really helped us get around and didn't kill as many people. So we shouldn't expect that this even more radical new form of technology is going to be solved you know, in a couple of years. So it's going to be a long journey. Or the firearm. I mean, sometimes states can act really coercively and say, like, this piece of technology just simply isn't going to be available for you to use. We, we are just going to control this. Um, you know, state, and states do, can do that. They, they do have a monopoly on the legal system and they do have a monopoly on legitimate violence. So, you know, and right at this moment where it really feels like in... in States are being undermined in in so many different ways. Um, I think I think eventually they're going to react to all this kind of stuff. Like, what effect could all of this have on our democracy, which already in some ways feels quite fragile? I mean, I I, I think that there is there is an emerging argument that um, technology and democracy are kind of inherently um, hostile to one another. Um, I've certainly heard. Um, uh, a, a kind of a whole spree during this kind of we're living through a tech clash at the moment right i mean there's all kinds of journalists and writers that that have kind of violently swung from the kind of 2012 Tahrir square the internet's going to liberate the world position to the cambridge analytica edward snowden position that we've created this kind of vast kind of surveillance manipulation machinery um, which is going to destroy democracy I frankly think those arguments are a little bit overheated. I think democracy has endured stiffer challenges than um, than di- the digital revolution. But I do think that, again, I'm going to go back to my point around speed. I mean, I really do think that... It, 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 I don't think it challenges like people's basic love of and support of a political system which they can be the authors of. I mean, I don't think any more people kind of... Uh, are kind of inherently hostile to democracy now in the UK than, than, than there have been in the past. But I do think that more and more people think that it's a system that isn't really working for them and it's a system that isn't able to deliver the kind of country that they want to live in. And I think that is because um, in area after area now, it just can't act with the speed that it needs to. So I think sooner or later, um, we're going to reopen a very, very old question, which is, um, how does democracy actually work? Um, what are the actual processes and steps that you put into place to put a people in charge? The last time we really discussed this was in 1649, just after we'd cut the head off Charles I. And that the answer <laughs> that time around um, was, uh, was to create sovereign parliaments, to literally represent the people in a convenient way, all in one room, kind of representative democracy. And that's been the form of democracy that we and most of the world really um, that is democratic has lived with ever since. Um, around the world now, I can see the kind of emergence of new kinds of politicians with new kinds of thinking, some of them drawn from the free software movement and the open source community. Um, but there are plenty of others, digital Democrats, I'd call them broadly, who um, want to reopen that question 
and think that there is no reason why we have to think that in the 21st century we need to create democracy um, in the same way that as we resolved it in the 17th. Okay, so I'm hearing that the, the future is looking exciting, scary, murky and shiny. And I think if this was an episode of Battlestar Galactica, we'd be ending with a to be continued. Um, so Duncan McCann from the New Economics Foundation, thank you for joining me. And Carl Miller from Demos, big thanks to you too. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. Aisha will be back next week. You'll all be very pleased to hear. Thanks for listening. And one final joke from me to leave you with. There are two types of people in this world, those who can extrapolate from incomplete data. <laughs> That's even worse than my <laughs> <one>. <laughs> <laughs>